Hi everybody and welcome to the Golders Podcast, where we aim to sprinkle particles of knowledge by engaging and educating. With your co-hosts, father and son duo, Keith and David Mayer. We're excited to have you on this journey with us and we know our wide variety of world-class guests will provide lots of value for our listeners. To ensure you stay up to date with everything we've got going on on the podcast, make sure you subscribe. As we mentioned last week, our book, Goldust, How to Become a More Effective Coach Quickly, is now a year old. And we brought the podcast out afterwards and we're really excited that we've got the Goldust courses and Goldust mentoring packages available for all of our listeners and anybody that's interested in them. For more information, you can head to our website, www.thegolddustcoach.com and subscribe to get emails and updates from us. And you can find us on Twitter at golddustpodcast. Now, without further ado, we're going to introduce today's guest. I think the term elite sports person and legend gets branded around quite a lot and is somewhat overused. But today's guest is most definitely elite and is most definitely a legend in the sport that he plays in. We're delighted to welcome on James Roby, the current St. Helens, Great Britain and England rugby league player. James has won pretty much everything there is to win in the sport, both from an individual and from a team standpoint. He most recently won the grand final for the fourth time and for the second time won man of the match in what is the biggest game in rugby league in England. In a sport as physically demanding as rugby league, it's incredible to think that Robes has played over 500 games in his career and year after year has consistently been one of if not the best player in the whole competition throughout that 500 game period. As you'll hear in this interview when Robes was asked to describe himself the three words he used was honest, hard-working and humble. That speaks volumes about a person so revered in his sport. James welcome First and foremost, congratulations on recently winning the Rugby League Grand Final against arch-rivals Wigan. And it's the fourth time in your playing career that you've done this. But how does this victory compare to all the others? I think it's very hard to compare different different years and different uh, you know teams and different victories with trophies and all that. Because I suppose there's, there's so many different factors each year and... I suppose the main one this year is obviously the the challenge of COVID. Really, um, you know, it's it kind of read its head, if you like. In that first lockdown, we went into in March from our point of view as a as rugby league team, uh, and then we were at home for sixteen weeks. So it was like all, almost all of a sudden, um, you know, right lads, crack on with what you've got at home. And you know, at the end of the day, we we've, we've not got home gyms. We've not got loads of gym equipment lying around and stuff like that. So we kind of had to just make do with the limited resources and, and things that we had. Um, so obviously that was, you know, a challenging period. Uh, and and then obviously we've got back to rugby, got back into the flow of things. But then again, there's been no fans and we've got to adhere to the, pro, uh, the, the COVID protocols in terms of the, you know, the weekly testing and keeping our mask on two metres when we're inside, all that stuff. So yeah, it's, that's been a big challenge and I think probably more so for us as professional athletes. Obviously, you've got to stick to the, the government guidelines, but on top of that, we're being that little bit more extra careful. You know, we're not really going out to, even though you're allowed to maybe go to a coffee shop, for example, you know, we'll, we'll refrain from that and we'll stay away on, and we won't go to a restaurant and, you know, we'll make sure we kind of keep our distance, even if it's picking the kids up and, and stuff like that. So there's been a lot of different sacrifices, really, I think, this year. And one thing it has given, uh, from my perspective, maybe because I'm getting you know, a bit older now and stuff and, and look at things a little bit differently, but a real appreciation for the staff and what they've done for us and, and how they complement us as a team. Because you know, we're the one who go out on the field and we get all the plaudits and, and we get, you know, we're recognised and things like that. But especially this year more than ever, without them guys, you know, we couldn't have achieved what what we did because they're the ones in early every morning, setting everything up. As you'll know, you know, coaching staff, you need to prepare your sessions. 
and, and not only prepare that, but prepare the whole environment to make sure it's an elite, you know, COVID secure workplace and, um, and nobody apart from us who get tested can go in and out of that. So, you know, it, it's been very challenging from that point of view, but also I think this year we had a bit of a, a narrative or a bit of motivation because a couple of guys were obviously leaving us, you know, which is pretty common anyway. But then, you know, we had Zeb Taylor who, you know, he's been with the club for about five years, I think. Um, fantastic player. And he was obviously retiring. So, you know, you'd always want to do your best. And then obviously probably one of the biggest stories was having James Graham back. So Jammer was, you know, obviously an ex St. Helens player, if you like, legend of the game, gone over to Australia, done everything over there. And, uh, you know, early on in the year, it was during the first lockdown, you know, an opportunity came up to re-sign Jammer. Um, so, you know, rightly so, as a club, we, we jumped at the opportunity and we, um, you know, we really kind of took it with both hands and, you know, it was a no-brainer really. Somebody of Jammer's experience and his personality, what he brings off the field is just as important as what he does on it. Um, you know, so obviously he's a close friend as well. So to get him back and to go on and win the grand final through, you know, extremely challenging circumstances was um, was fantastic for us and obviously against Wigan as well you know it probably makes it that little bit more special and you know for those who've watched the game I'm sure you'll agree that the ending was absolutely insane and I, I doubt that you know may never happen again that was you know I've heard it be referred to as the Aguero moment of, of rugby league if you like but um, it was it was super special and, and one that will live with us for a long time so I've probably kind of gone around you know, your original question there give you a bit of a run through the year, but you know, that's just my thoughts and um and that and that's why obviously it, it will be very special because of the challenges and the people who we've we've got to send home or send back to Australia, you know, with a winner's ring. Yeah. And I think that game was it probably the best game of rugby I've ever seen. Now I'm gonna go back for from our standpoint for you to where you started. So before we go into depth with your professional career, we just want to look a little bit as, as to what your formative years in sports were like. Yeah, so I, um, as, a, as a kid, obviously always classed myself as a you know, typical young lad, quite kind of sporty and, and, and just always up to something. I suppose childhoods were a bit, a bit different. We're probably that last generation before technology took over. But yeah, we. Um, I was when I was about six years old or something like that. I think I I tried football first, uh, and you know I didn't really touch to it. Um, I think my mom, my dad's a, a massive football fan, a massive Liverpool fan, and I think he kind of he wanted me to to go into football, but wasn't really for me. Uh, even tried karate and other things like that. And then one of my one of my school friends, I think I was about seven years old. He played rugby for the local team. His dad was the coach uh, and just said, you know, why don't you come down? We need, we're short on players. Um, come down and try it. And I kind of, I always remember just going down and never played rugby before, but just loving the, the physical side of it, loving, you know, making tackles and, you know, being in contact with other people and uh, and obviously running the ball. It was, you know, a bit of a, a different game than, than football. But yeah, just really, really enjoyed it. And obviously... You know that was it. Then just stuck with uh, you know the same team from when I joined up to at Blackbrook. It was uh, Blackbrook Juniors all the way from being seven years old all the way through until uh, under 16s, and then obviously kind of progressed uh, to St Helens. The you know the represented teams are like 16s and 17s, and it's kind of changed that many times over the years. I forget what it was when I when I started, but. Um, and it was a bit different back then because scouts used to kind of come down a little bit earlier and you had representative town teams that say under 11s and then under 13s, you might have like a Northwest Counties v Yorkshire and stuff like that, um, where that doesn't really happen now until they're about 16 years old. But I was lucky enough to, you know, to be involved in that sort of, you know, process, if you like, of the town teams and the, the representative like Lancashire teams and things like that. Yeah, and then just obviously, you know, made a bit of a a progression line through to um, 
to St Helens and, and around 16 years old, then obviously you, you know, they start, you know, being a bit more professional with you, giving you a bag of kit and stuff and getting you on the weights and, and things like that, teaching you how to squat effectively and, and lift a dumbbell and stuff. And, and yeah, the, the rest is, the rest is history, I suppose. You've obviously been with Saints. You've been there your whole career. Now you made your debut 2004 against Witness. And you've yep. been you've been a constant presence in the side really ever since then. Now, your early years, you came off the interchange bench for probably the first six years of your career as a replacement for legendary Saints hooker Kieran Cunningham, who you've obviously gone on to succeed in the side. Um, the question: How did you working under like how, how did working under Kieran Cunningham help shape your career? Yeah, well, well, massively, really. I think it's it's probably not until I, you know you get asked questions like that and you actually sit down and, and have a think about it that you realise. But I think, like you said, I I kind of made my way into the team in two thousand and four, and it all happened really fast. It, you know, in a nutshell, basically, I was playing for the under. I was eighteen years old. I was playing for the under nineteens, and um, we were coming to the end of the season. And I must have played all right. And then the, sorry, after the Christmas break, if you like, the under 21s were playing, uh, their season had started, sorry. And I was obviously in the team below the under 19s, but they had a bit of an injury to the, whoever the halfback at the time was Phil Anderson, a, a kind of a, a lad who used to play a bit older than me at Blackbrook. And um, he got injured. So, the academy staff obviously said, well, well, we've got, you know, a halfback who plays in the under-19s. He can come up and, you know, play a few games for you until you get the injured lad back. And luckily for me, I went, played for the, the under-21s. I think I started the season and, and must have played really well for the first month or so. And then uh, Ian Millward, who was the coach at the time, uh, he came down to, to academy training one night. On mm -hmm. a, I'll never forget, it was a, a Wednesday evening. And uh, we finished training and he, he said, oh, can I have a word? And obviously, I've never met him before. I was really nervous thinking, oh, you know, he's, he's the gaffer. And, um, and then he said, oh, I'd, I'd like you to come training tomorrow with the first team. So obviously, I was over the moon, excited, didn't know what, you know, couldn't thank him enough. But for obviously, he's just kind of given me a bit of a pat on the back for doing well, playing well. And, um, you know, probably inviting me to the first team. And, you know, after I've had a day there, it's a, a bit of a boost and, um, anyway, I got to to training, and you know I'll never forget all the lads. Obviously, have their own training kit, and he kind of he just get Stan, who you know people within rugby league will remember Stan Wall really well. He used to be the kit man back then, and he just kind of gave me a bag of any old kit and throw that on. And I was in a white training kit, and everybody else was in blue. And you know I felt like the the, the real odd one out. And anyway, I, I trained, had a great day. All the lads were brilliant, and then at the end of the session. Ian Millward pulled me to one side again and he said, oh, by the way, you're, you're on the bench on Friday, you're playing. And I was like, oh, I couldn't believe it, do you know what I mean? I was oh my God, I had to go back to sixth form in the afternoon. I remember I had a, a little old mini back then. I nearly crashed my car because I was that excited <laughs> driving back to school. <laughs> um, it was unbelievable. And then obviously, sorry, like, like you say, I, I got to... Uh, so I actually came on and my debut was a scrum half for Sean Long. And it wasn't until a few months later that I I was playing alongside being like involved in the first team. I played. I went back and played for Lancashire under 18s, and the hooker at the time was injured, so I filled in. Never played hooker before. Uh, had a good game, and and when I went back to Saints after that, that's when they said, "Well, well it looked like it kind of suited you." To be honest, you you know we think maybe maybe nine might be a good position for you. So I'd never actually played there till I was 18, and and then obviously. That was it then, but you know, luckily for me at the time, like you say, we had the legend Kieran Cunningham, we had Mickey Hyam under him, and then there was me. I was kind of third choice, if you like, and then Mickey Hyam uh, moved on at the end of that season. I think it was to, went to Wigan, so that kind of opened up a bit more of a, an opportunity for me to work in tandem with Kieran, and yeah, it, it just kind of seemed to work very well because. I remember I had the, the backing of the coaching staff, which was brilliant for me. At a, a young age, they really instilled me with a lot of confidence. And, you know, I remember them saying to me, listen, like, we, we just want you to back yourself. 
run with the ball as much as you can. Uh, you know, really take them on. And, and the theory being, Kieran would kind of, you know, start games generally 20 minutes, half an hour into the game as lads are getting a bit tired. And, you know, there's been a few whacks. Kieran's kind of brought the door down, if you like. And then I come on a little bit of a, like a, an impact player, or, you know, a Jack Russell and, and try and, you know, try and run around these these big lads who are now tired. And yeah, it just really works. And, you know, like smiling about it now, thinking that it, it just, uh, you know, those years were, were great for me as a young lad to, to be part of such a successful team. And I like to say people like Kieran because Kieran was, you know, I suppose the, the biggest thing I can compliment him for is coming to the, the team. Obviously, he's a legendary player held in the highest regard. And he's a fantastic bloke as well. And he always has, always had time for me. And one thing, you know, I always liked about him was he, he led by his actions and, and led by example. And he was a fantastic family man. You know, he didn't drink, anything like that. He was very professional, you know, which is quite rare, obviously, in a, in a rugby team environment. Generally, there's, there's a few loose lads around, but Kieran was very disciplined in that respect, which, again, is one thing, you know, at the time, probably overlooked it. But as I've got older, you know, and I realise now, things like that were probably, you know, the, the best things he could have done for to set an example to us young lads. But yeah, he had different strengths, I suppose, than me. We were different sorts of players, even though we had the same position. And, you know, Kieran was probably more of a, a block-busting, powerful, you know, he had a, a great, obviously, uh, you know, rugby knowledge, great pass of the ball, you know, scored many tries through Kieran's plays. But, you know, he could run over the top of people, he could barge over. And if you ran straight at him, you know, good luck, you, you're getting put on your backside. Whereas... I'm probably, you know, not as physical, if you like. And I, I try and probably base a bit more of my game on, on a bit of a running ball, running game, sorry, on the back of a quick play of the ball. But yeah, Kieran had a, a great impact on me. And I suppose when he finished, I kind of, you know, mentally thought, well, you know, I've seen how how highly respected Kieran is across the game and what he's achieved. and uh, And obviously you know, the big boots to fill, if you like, that number nine shirt. So I'll give it everything I can. And yeah, I'm, you know, I'm pretty content with, uh, with where it's gone up to now. But like you say, them, them early years working in tandem with Kieran has definitely, uh, you know, put me in the right direction. You spoke a little earlier, James, around your dad having an interest. You're a Liverpool fan, football fan. and But you fell into rugby and you then filling the boots of a legend in Kieran Cunningham and the sharing of those stories are wonderful to hear. Now, athletes and sports in general appear to be getting a lot quicker. Uh, it's such a fast-paced game nowadays, particularly rugby league and many other sports, incidentally. But in rugby league, 80 minutes, end-to-end stuff, it requires lots of structure and organisation. And sometimes on the fly, you're organising things uh, especially at the play of the ball, which is where you're right at the coalface. But how do you direct play through that 80-minute period? Uh, and how do you communicate to your teammates what's expected? Yeah, it's an uh, interesting point, really. I think, like you said, the game, first and foremost, the game is quicker now, definitely. Um, since I started, it, I suppose like all sports, it, they evolve over time, don't they? And, and yeah, the the introduction of the new rule changes as well this year after the you know the initial lockdown. You know, so for those who, who don't obviously watch rugby league, we've we've got rid of scrums. We've put um, like a time limit on any stoppages in the game now. So we've got to, you know, take a drop out quicker. You've got to get and bring the ball in and play the ball quicker if it goes out into touch. And it all makes the game more entertaining and faster. And the ball's in play more. There's less stoppages, obviously, but. Obviously, more action means more fatigue and potentially more injuries and more impacts and, and stuff like that, which is, in my opinion, great for the game. I think it's, it's brilliant and it rewards your fitter players, if you like, who, you know, who are willing to work hard and, and stay in the fight. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's obviously a challenge. You know, I'm lucky that I get to you know, play 80 minutes you know, quite a lot of the time. Uh, in a, obviously, physically in demanding position but you know at the end of the day this is, it's a team sport and none of us can do you know what we uh what we do individually without each other and 
I'm very lucky at St. Helens and I, and I always have been, to be honest, in the respect that you talk about communication and I suppose that revolves around the spine of your team, you know, namely being your, your full-back, your scrum half, your standoff and your hooker. And, you know, you could potentially throw your, your loose forward in there as well. But yeah, at Saints, obviously, at the minute, for example, we've got Lachlan Coote, Theo Farge and Johnny Lomax and myself who probably do the majority of the, the organising and directing, if you like, with, with the players. But again, because of the standard we are and the, the team cohesion, and obviously, the kind of for the last few years, we've, we all know the players. We've done, we generally run the similar players and everybody knows their role within the team and what we should do at any given moment. Um, so that obviously makes stuff a lot easier. And from from my point of view as a hooker, I predominantly, uh, I suppose you could say it's my responsibility to get the team from our own try line, if you like, to to up and around halfway. You know, our, we call it yardage. So, you know, getting out of our own half, if you like, it, you know, probably falls down to, you know, a few of the outside backs will take carries, but then also the big men and, and they're kind of my department and, and I'll work in tandem with them and try and get us get us out of the, the crap, if you like. And then that's when T.O., Johnny and uh, Lock and Coot, they'll come into their own then and I kind of almost rely on them because as well, when you're playing hooker, obviously I'm following the ball around a lot and you know you don't really get a, a minute to, to sometimes have a, have a look and assess the numbers, if you like. And, you know, obviously that's that's one skill that you've got to be able to do. You've got to scan the defence and obviously pick off numbers. And if you've got a, an overlap on one side, you know, then that's our responsibility to spot that. But also that's where, you know, I'm lucky that I've got them guys who are like kind of an extra pair of eyes and ears. And, you know, they'll make it known if they want the ball, I'll get the ball to them. And then obviously, um, you know, they'll try and break the defences down. But, but yeah, I suppose... Communication as well is not only when we've got the ball; it's also in defence, which is you know we pride ourselves on on the on our defence, and I think we've had the best best defence in the league for the last couple of years now, um, which is obviously testament to everybody's hard work. But also as a as a captain of the squad as well, captain of the team, kind of a key point of communication is normally um, because of the new stoppages as well. We don't really have much chance to get together as a, as a team or as a group until there's a try. So obviously it could be either a try scored against us or a try that we've scored. And then obviously we get, you know, a little bit of a time to, to regroup, have a quick drink and, and, and reassess where we are. And I suppose that's where, the, you know, the responsibility falls on me and a couple of the other senior lads to, to put our input there. But also, you know, more times than not, I've found this year in particular, just, you know, keep everybody calm, keep everybody cool and concentrate on the job at hand. So we mentioned earlier, there's obviously been no fans, which have been quite challenging. But equally, if we look at it and flip it round, we, we're talking about communication here, James, where you, you're playing in front of a packed house, you're playing in front of 15, 20 odd thousand at times, if not more. How do you get to hear when you've got fans and you're communicating your messages, trying to get something over to players? Have you found it slightly different because of the lack of fans nowadays? Yeah, definitely. I think, like you say, we've, we've probably took fans for granted and it's probably sad to say that we've actually got used to, to operating without them. You know, I can't wait for the day at the back, obviously, but we've kind of, I suppose with everything this year, you've just got to be able to adapt and, you know, we, we've got on with whatever COVID has, has threw at us and obviously one of those being no fans, which is, Obviously, it's not nice to, to play in front of no fans and it's not nice for finances of the sport. But, um, but yeah, so be it. But um, there's, there's definitely is times in games, you know, it comes to mind, obviously, say Saints, Wigan, Derby, Good Friday, the crowd do not shut up the whole game. Do you know what I mean? So sometimes you, you literally, you don't hear, someone could be shouting something five yards away and you might not hear them. And obviously it could it could cause a breakdown of communication. It could cause an error or a mishap or, you know, a pass goes to the wrong person or something like that. But like you say, you just got to take those things on the, on the chin. But um, I think this year with COVID and no fans, it's all, it's the opposite because like I've just mentioned, you know, sometimes after we score a try, we'll get maybe 30 seconds or so while the kicker's kicking the ball. 
Uh, he's doing the conversion. We get a little chat together. But even sometimes we find ourselves, obviously, in the heat of the game, we're all kind of emotionally invested and adrenaline's pumping. And we're, we're almost shouting at each other. And then we're like, hang about, lads. Everybody on the sideline can hear us. The opposition coaching staff can hear us. The opposition team can hear us. Uh, so we don't really you know, want to give too much away. And then we, we kind of over, overcompensate and start whispering. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's different. And I suppose that's just one of the challenges we've, uh, we've had to get on with, really. But, yeah, the, the sooner we get fans back, the better. Because I think it'll be uh, you know, not just better for, for the sport, like I've said, financially. But, it, you know, it'll, it'll really give everyone a boost, I reckon. Because, you know, people have been missing the live sport. Yeah. Now, I'm going to go back a little bit now to your early years with Saints. So... First taste of silver were 2006, where you won the treble. 2007, you were actually the first player to score a try at the new Wembley and won the Challenge Cup. You then won the League Leaders' Shield, and that season, you also personally won the Man of Steel Award, which, for those that aren't aware, it's given to the best player in the league. Now, that very prestigious award, which at the time had previously been won by fellow Saints legends and, and teammates in Sean Long, Jamie Lyon, Paul Sculthorpe and Paul Wellens and has since been won by other Saints players. But in that that two-year spell, what did winning those trophies and, and more so that individual award, the Man of Steel award, what did it mean to you? Yeah, well, like you said, those years I kind of classed them as, or a lot of people like yourself, St. Allen's fans, will class them as a, a hugely successful period for, for us as the club. I'm forever grateful to be a, a part of that and at such a young age as well. Because back then I was probably still one of the younger lads in the team and we had a, st- a team littered with international players. It was ridiculous how many players we had um, you know, selected for the likes of you know, Great Britain, uh, Australia. We obviously had Jamie Lyon, who you mentioned, who played for, played for Australia. We had lads who played for New Zealand. So yeah, it was a, it was a, great, a great team and a privilege for me to be a part of it and, and obviously like you mentioned that year we 2006 we kind of cleaned up and, and won everything on offer 2007 obviously um you know backed it up with the challenge cup and the league leader shield and we just fell you know a little bit short in in the final hurdle at the grand final but unbelievable kind of times and memories from all from all those periods and going back to the the man of steel one that was you know a huge surprise to be honest for myself i remember being uh, being nominated for the award and I was really surprised because obviously the, the player of the year is such a the man of steel if you like it's such a, a massive award um, you know one person every year goes gets to put their name on that trophy and there's some absolute you know the, the people you speak of about being legends or immortals or whatever of rugby league they're on this trophy so yeah I was over the moon to firstly you know, just get nominated. And that year, I remember I was nominated alongside Trent Barris of Wigan and my teammate Paul Wellens, who I think had won it um, the year before as well. I, I, uh, so I just thought, I'm just going up to, to make the numbers, do you know what I mean? I, these two guys are going to battle it out and they've just kind of threw me in because I've had a bit of a decent year and I'm a young lad and, you know, let's spice it up. And obviously I went on to, to win the award. I remember win the awards so I mean my wife was pregnant at the time we were obviously pretty young parents and and something like that happening was was unbelievable because I remember uh, Eddie Hemmings who used to do the Sky commentary he hosted the event and uh, he started to read out a little bit of a, a description of the winner and it said like oh his favourite position is standoff he's blah 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 and my wife's looking over the table and she's going, it's you, it's you. And I'm like, I'm, no, I don't like playing stand-up. <laughs> I don't know where they've got that information. That's not me, that's not me. Uh, anyway, it was me and I, obviously I got on stage and I was just so kind of honoured to, you know, to achieve it. But I do look back on it now and I do think, you know, did I deserve it that year? I don't know because I was a young lad. I was still coming off the bench, if you like. I'm, I'm very open to the fact that you know, the, the tagline surrounding Man of Steel at the time was which players had the biggest impact on this year. And I was often referred to as an impact player, which I think kind of worked in my favour a little bit. Um, but yeah, you know, I went on and I won the award and unbelievable, you know, I can always, like you say, I can always say I've 
I've won the Man of Steel and, you know, even though I was genuinely surprised and I still probably think, you know, it should have probably gone to one of the other two guys. But, but on, the, on the other hand, having said that, since then, I reckon I've had much better years. Do you know what I mean? And I, if anything, I should have had more of a, a chance on, on, on subsequent years. But yeah, it's been there. It was obviously a fantastic kind of springboard, springboard sorry, so to say, for, uh, for my career. And it was, I do remember it being quite mentally challenging at, at the time in, in terms of you win such an award at a young age, there's an expectation on your shoulders then. Uh, and I remember going back to St. Helens and thinking, right, well, I better back this up or else, you know, people are going to be asking questions and people are going to be saying, you know, you didn't deserve this, you don't deserve that. So I almost took it as a little bit of a fuel, if you like, a bit of motivation. And, and yeah, just kind of kicked on from there, to be honest. And we'll, we'll touch on more of those positives and how your career progressed through the years. But there were also some big disappointments during this spell. So... After three consecutive Challenge Cups, four League Leader Shields in a row, and obviously the, the the Grand Final that you'd won in 2006, Saints then went on to lose five Grand Finals in a row between 2007 and 2011. Four against Leeds and, and then one against local rivals, Wigan. As, as an individual and as a team, how did you manage those disappointments? Yeah, it, well... First and foremost, it was it was heartbreaking, you know, to to lose five grand finals in a row is unbelievable, and I, I kind of wouldn't wish that on on anybody, to be honest. You know what I mean? It's you you work so hard, you know, to all year long to get to the grand final, and then you know to lose at the final hurdle, and I suppose more times than not in those five years as well, we were generally the best team throughout the year, the most consistent team the most deserving, if you, if you want to look at it that way. But then, at the end of the day, the, the way the competition structured, if you don't perform in that final 80 minutes, you're not going on with the trophy, you're not the champions. So it was a, a massive, I suppose, lesson for us as well, because you know we can look at it from a, the positive side of it, is that we had the ability to dust ourselves off year after year and get there again, and which takes a hell of a lot of courage, a hell of a lot of hard work and dedication, commitment, all that of real team effort to, to keep backing it up. And, and like you say, a lot of people, I think, kind of look at it as there is, it's, it's, it's obviously heartbreaking, but I like to look at it almost, well, at least we got there five times in a row, plus winning it the year before, so six times in a row. To get to the grand final, to put yourself in the final two, six years in a row, is one hell of an effort. And even though we obviously lost the games, you know, I'd like to think we, we learned some lessons. Probably some we didn't learn quick enough because, like you said, Leeds beat us four times out of those five. And Leeds were typical Leeds, as were we were typical St. Helens back then. And maybe in hindsight, we could look back and say, should we have changed little bits of, of the game plan or bits of the way we played just to, you know, to combat the way that we know Leeds are going to play. Because um, obviously they, they were well known at the time for, you know, grand finals traditionally played October, wet weather rugby. You know, it's all about field position and kicking the ball well. So, yeah, Leeds were obviously very, very good at that. And we don't know if um, if we should have maybe changed it at the time, but you know, so be it. it. It's all happened. So he did bounce back. And he bounced back in 2014. We got to the grand final and you beat local rivals, Wigan. You were named Harrison Lynn Trophy Man of the Match in a 14-6 victory. After all the disappointments, how did you prepare going into that final? What was the difference between that and the others? Yeah, well, I think it probably did us some good that we actually had a couple of years without reaching the final. After all that disappointment of, of getting to the final and losing, I think obviously a couple of years of, of not really getting there, probably you know a bit of a dip in form, if you like, or not performing as well as we should have done. Anyway, in, in 14, you know, we get there. It's obviously a massive game against Wigan, sold out at Old Trafford. And I just remember after the game, it was as much relief as it was joy because, like you say, we finally got that monkey off our back. 
we'd finally gone to Old Trafford and, and won the thing. And it was so great for us to to just almost like it was we've been carrying that years and years of of this tag of being, you know, the nearly men and, and losing in finals to finally get that off our back. And obviously, you know, I'm sure you guys will know Keen Rugby fans, the uh, you know, the iconic well on on his knees, beating his chest, you know, letting out a war cry if you like, you know, just pure emotion of, you know, finally we've done it and um yeah, and but I like to think that that has obviously then contributed to the, the subsequent success that we've had because that again has been a bit of a kicker, a bit of a starting point for what we do now is we get to finals and we win finals. We don't get to finals and lose them anymore. And, and that's our identity as a team. And look, between that, so we'll touch on the successes we're saying. So 2017, you you represented England and got agonisingly close to winning the World Cup too. So personally, you played 80 minutes in the final. Um, but as a team, you fell to short and you actually got, you only got beat 6-0 to Australia, but as a country, what do England need to do to hit the pinnacle? Yeah, it's a very well good question, and I could touch on a lot of things really. I could touch on, um, you know, from from a player's point of view, I think it's definitely going in the right direction. From my experiences of being involved in the, uh, you know, the the international setup in England, probably going back. A number of years now to uh, when Steve McNamara was the coach and he started to implement these get-togethers if you like because as you'll know the the rugby league calendar doesn't really give many opportunities for you know the international game to occur so you know generally they squeeze a few internationals in at the end of a season end of a long season when lads are generally you know carrying injuries a bit fatigued looking forward to going on their holidays all this you know, they, they kind of squeeze it in there and I think it, it probably come like from two angles. I think from one side, what we need to do is more of the same. Like I was saying before, with, with Steve McNamara, he brought in these get-togethers and I think those kind of really laid a bit of a foundation because at the time, we would play against each other all year long and play, get selected for England or Great Britain and play at the end of the season. Whereas... He made us meet up every couple of months uh, as a playing squad. And it would generally just be something really informal, maybe go out for a meal together or meet up at a hotel, get a guest speaker in and just leave the lads in a room for a few hours to to have a chat and, and mingle and mix. And I remember at first everybody being a bit apprehensive about it and a bit, you know, this is a bit weird going, speaking to them guys who we play against, they're the opposition, you know. And it was almost like a bit of... Um, you know, a standoff. It was almost like we worse than Tellens, and you're somebody else. So we'll never fully let our guard down, and and we'll we'll just see how it goes. And but when it gets to the end of the year and we play together, or oh, then we're full on teammates, and we'll we'll let that barrier go if you like. So I think one thing Steve's got to be uh, commended for is the way that did break down barriers. And obviously, it did take time. It did take a number of meetups, or probably a good number of years before everybody kind of bought into it, and then. You know, since then, there's been a few different coaches of the international setup, and obviously it's changed from England to Great Britain and it's back to England again next year. But I think results on the field have improved steadily as well. And like you say, that 2017 World Cup, we were so close. We were almost at an ankle tap. You know, the, Callum Watkins gets ankle taps. Who knows? We might have been under the sticks, kicking the goal, we might have won the game. So we were hugely proud and kind of we were happy, if you like, content with what we did over there. But we knew maybe, you know, that little couple of percent more might have got us over the line. And I think that's what England needs from a player's point of view. We need the, the team to be performing, to be beating Australia, really. At the end of the day, Australia are the number one team in the world. We need to set their crown. And uh, there's no better chance to do that than we've got a World Cup next year on home soil. And I think everything is going in the right direction. And then the other point, sorry, that I um, I mentioned before about there's not much opportunity for international games. I don't know if it's obviously something that will have to probably come from the governing body or, you know, a, a group decision with all the, the leaders of the clubs. But in my eyes, the, the international game needs to have more importance. We need to get more kind of viewers, more appeal to it. Because if you look at Rugby Union, for example, 
they can sell out Twickenham. They could they could probably play at Twickenham every couple of weeks and sell it out for England v Barbarians or whoever. Whereas it's it's very much kind of a club mentality in rugby league and people support the club and then they might support England, but they're not that bothered about going watching them. So I don't know how we combat that, to be honest, but um, I do think there's definitely a scope for, for some sort of growth there and, and to uh, put a bit more emphasis on the international game. So we, we pull it back to St. Helens. <coughs> Excuse me. In most recent years, James, the uh, St. Helens Rugby League have become a dominant force again. Since 2018, you've won... Two league leader shields, two grand finals. Prior to that, there are a couple of years of underachievements, of course, uh, for a club's a club of Saint stature. What are the key ingredients behind the club's turnaround? Yeah, I think it's probably a, a few bits and bobs, really. Obviously, a few key personnel in terms of staff and players. But generally, I'd like to think that at St Helens, I think we have a, a great culture, to be honest. And I think that's evolved and developed over the years. And, and we've kind of built that as a squad, especially you, you look at your senior players or your, your staff who've been there for a number of years. I think they've had a big part to play in that. And that obviously coupled with you know the, the correct recruitment of the correct people, they've got to have the right personality as well as having the right uh, skills on the field. And everything's kind of gone in the right direction. And over the last few years, results have been very good. I think 2017, we, we narrowly missed out um, in semi-finals. And 18, we missed out in semi-finals of, of Challenge Cup and, and going to the playoffs to the grand final. I honestly believe that those kind of defeats almost set us up and give us that extra motivation, if you like, to, to succeed the year after. And, you know, I'm a big believer in that, that teams probably across other sports as well, it's pretty similar. They kind of learn those sorts of lessons in big games and fall at semi-finals or finals. Then it's almost, you know, beware because the year after they're going to they're come gunning for that and they've been so close, then beware them the year after. And that was very much us, I think. And, and obviously 2019, we had a lot of success under, obviously you've interviewed Justin yourself, um, he had a great impact on us as a squad. He, he came in. Um, I think the timing of it was was perfect for where we was as a as a team and him as an individual and a coach himself. Um, and it all just aligned really. And and everybody had uh, you know great times on and off the field. Obviously because we're, we're winning, everybody's happy. And he laid a lot of a lot of foundations really with with us as a team and, and an organisation, if you like. And then obviously this year we've had Christian Wolf come in. Who again? He's you know fantastic coach, a great thinker of the game, great communicator, ticks all the boxes, and uh, he's pretty much come in and and carried on Justin's you know philosophy, if you like. He, they do kind of very similar in terms of the standards and you know the the demanding in do the right thing, you lead with reactions, and but also Christian's probably added a little bit of a, a tweak here and there, and, and Christian's probably first say he's a bit more defensive focused whereas Justin was maybe a bit more attacking focused but again having that fresh coach that fresh you know pair of eyes fresh perspective has helped us on the way and the group we've got like I say I'd like to think that it's it kind of it's the type of group that we that we want and that we've kind of encouraged over the years and we've whittled out if you like a few people here and there who you know maybe didn't fit our, our group as we wanted it to but we're in a very good place and I am very confident in the team that we've got um, at the minute and the, and the squad and the organisation that everything is you know in, in a very good place and I think the, the foundation is set for, for future success already. And you mentioned off the back of that a little bit earlier about you being a captain in the group. Now as a, as a captain and a leader within this group as a collective how do you help the players and especially the younger players in the, in the group adjust and adapt to change especially with changing coaches over the last couple of years? Well, everybody's different, I suppose, from that point of view. A lot of the the young lads nowadays, they're all kind of, they're all obviously great players. That's why they're in the, the team with us in, in the first place. And I will always say that to them, you know, back yourself. That's why you're here. You've got the skills, you know, you've got the right work ethic and things like that. So 
go out there and show people what you what you're capable of. Get different personalities, I suppose, different maturity levels in in the young lads. And our job is obviously to you know, I suppose like similar to a coach, you know, the emotional intelligence to to kind of appreciate who needs that arm round the shoulder approach and who needs a bit of a rocket up the backside because we do, we do have you know different lads like that in the uh, in our first team so i suppose it's it's our responsibility really to to keep them you know striving to to do the best and striving you know depending on where they are in the development and where they are and have they played any games for us or are they trying to get into the team or are they a regular and and just help them along the way but i suppose the biggest the biggest kind of example that i think we can set or myself set is just to do the right thing try and pride myself on on doing the right thing all the time and you know, I don't think there's much more you can ask than that. And integrity is probably, you know, the most valued and respected kind of trait that I think you can portray in a team sport. You know, and I mentioned our culture earlier. We've got a lot of, you know, everybody's very genuine people. There's nobody seeking attention. We just want to work hard for the team. Um, we're all hard working. We all want the same goal at the end of the day. And we'll have fun. You know, don't get me wrong. We have fun while we're doing it. But us leaders, if you like, try to set an example for our actions and you are what you do at the end of the day not what you say you'll do well it's nice to hear it sounds very much like there's a solid culture that's been built over a period of time you've forged good solid relationships both with the staff coaches uh which you spoke quite uh positively about uh, earlier in the in the interview now there's lots of highs and lows in the game and that must be quite challenging at times to be able to manage both as a collective, but equally for yourself. But how specifically do you deal with the lows as well as having that balanced view on, on the eyes of the sport? Yeah, the, so I suppose it, it whittles down to my personality. I think of the game, or in general, I'm a pretty laid-back guy and I generally think of a lot of things in black and white. So I don't know if that's right or wrong, but and I keep things very simple. I, I class myself, uh, you know, in the best sense of the word, as as a, as a simple person in terms of, you know, I, I turn up, I like to work hard, I like to get my job done and I come home and, and be with my family. And like you say, there's a lot of highs and lows, especially in professional sport, kind of condition that comes with the job. So when, when everything does happen that's a low, I'm very much of the thought that well, what's done is done. I don't kind of overanalyze it, overthink things. I think that can make it worse. And almost put a bit of a perspective on things. And like I say, we've lost the final or whatever. Well, at the end of the day, I'm going home. I've got a beautiful wife and two kids who are happy and healthy. At the end of the day, does a game of rugby league really matter? And, you know, some people might look at that and think, you know, how dare you think of it like that? But, you know, that's just how I cope with it, to be honest. And if something bad does happen, well, it's happened. There's no point. I'll try my best next week. I'll learn my lesson from it. And uh, and I, I just try and keep it pretty simple like that. But in terms of highs, obviously, probably now I am getting older as well. I definitely appreciate the highs a lot more. And I realise that, you know, you, you've got to embrace the challenge and you've got to enjoy the journey, but celebrate the highs when you can and celebrate all these victories because. You know, before I know it, I'm going to be retired, and you know, I want I want these memories to last. Sure, uh, and hopefully not be retiring for a few years yet. But the <laughs> have you always been like that? You know, as a young young lad, as a young player, I know it's very difficult to reflect on what you could have been, what we would have been. Have you always embraced that type of mentality to be able to put things into perspective and crack on? I think so. Yeah, but I think that's obviously been something that's really helped me out I think in my career as a, as a professional athlete the fact that my mindset like I say I don't know if it's right or it's wrong but I don't overly stress of things you could say I kind of treat it very much of a job like mentality in terms of I go in I clock in and I clock out and then when I come home I don't really talk about rugby if you came to my house you wouldn't know a rugby player you know there's no shirts on the walls nothing like that I like to almost distance myself or keep you know keep me rugby a little bit separate and I pride myself on being being a good family man and um, 
and like I say, my I'm happy at home. There's nowhere I'm I'm more happy in there. And you know, as long as you know we're doing well here, and my kids are, are enjoying themselves and they're happy and stuff like that, then you know it, it works for me. And I, I suppose I'm I'm lucky that I've got a nice stable home environment, which has obviously been the the same throughout my whole career, uh, with the support of my wife and stuff like that. And I think that's definitely kind of added to you know consistency if you like at the end of the day you know people talk about consistency and I always think people can they're trying to almost come up with some secret ingredient or secret how are people consistent and all that well for me it's really simple it's if you turn up and be yourself every day then you're going to get the same results every day and you're going to be consistent and you know it's um you know you, you don't want to trade your authenticity for uh, approval and just be yourself at the end of the day and like you say I'm my mindset is that I like to I like to work hard on the rugby field I like to work hard when I'm at training have a laugh with my mates but then if something does really go wrong I don't worry about it too much too much that will affect me my personality outside of rugby and don't get me wrong obviously if we we lose a game or especially if I've done an individual mistake in a game or something that's cost us then you know, I'm going to be a bit moody for, for that evening when I get home or maybe the day after, but it won't carry on any longer than that. Where I know of other sportsmen and other teammates, to be honest, who, you know, they really do dwell on things. And, you know, from my experience, I don't think that's healthy. It's very evident, James, you're family man and very, very humble in the way that you act. Now, we're going to big you up a bit. And I'm going to read a quote from Jamie Peacock, MBEU, for, for again, for those that don't know, one of the most successful players in the sport. Yeah. Now, he said the following about you in the lead-up to your 500th game, which was this season, which, to put into perspective, to play 500 games in a sport like this, is it, it's unbelievable. And this is what he said. James Roby, a modern-era GOAT, just so good, every week that he's been, he's been taken for granted, except for with his teammates. Only the very best can give you a consistently excellent performance. And Robes has and still does that. Welcome to the 500 Club. So he's talked on the consistency. You've just mentioned it, being consistent. And I think that's one thing for you in your career. People are going to ask about James Roby, consistency, but at the top level will get mentioned but from our standpoint hopefully we've got a few more years of James Roby the player let's hope so but have you thought about what's next for you when you hang your boots up uh, yeah well I think firstly going back to your, your point from Jamie Peacock obviously he's a, a player I hugely admire uh, I got to spend a lot of time with, with Jamie during my times playing for international uh, and he is a leader of men in every sense of the word. I think he obviously leads his actions on the field, big physical presence, um, aggressive and, you know, real good inspirational communicator. But yeah, just a, a really good bloke as well, do you know what I mean? I've got to, got to know him and, and he's uh, obviously gone on and done, you know, something. He's still involved in the sport, but uh, I know he does speak uh, a little bit in terms of the mindset side of things and, um, that's probably one scenario that I'm definitely hugely interested in, personal kind of mental toughness and um, and things, and you know, an area that I'd like to explore a bit more really in in the future. But yeah, after after I do hang my boots up, um, which potentially could be this time next year, or potentially the year after that, I don't know to be honest. Will I've just finished? You know, well, I really made up to say I've just finished my master's degree. Uh, in sports directorship so that was a real challenge you know to to get that through obviously with a you know alongside playing and, and young family and stuff like that and um, so I'm really proud of the fact that I've, I've managed to finish that off so hopefully that will potentially open some doors and not necessarily within rugby league I'm, I'm quite excited by a bit of a change and maybe branching out into a, another sport Definitely professional sport I want to be involved in, but but I'm not sure, you know, which direction or which sport that may be at the minute. And I suppose that's a job for me to to get on with before I finish playing. 
I'll have to obviously put a few feelers out and tap up a few contacts and uh, and see what possibilities there are out there. But I'm really, really excited by what the future may hold and, and what I could possibly bring to, to an organisation because there's definitely a lot of, of traits that carry over and a lot of experiences that I've been lucky enough to be a part of. You know, you, you can't teach those type of stuff in a, in a classroom. And yeah, I'm just really looking forward to it. And I'm quite happy to say I'm, I'm relaxed about it at the minute. I'm not kind of stressing too much, but, you know, ask me that question again in a, in a year's time and <laughs> I might give you a different answer. But, um, but yeah, the like I said, I, I suppose getting my head back into some academic work and kind of meeting the theory and practice and experience and putting it in a mixing pot, if you like, and has really opened my eyes and, and really... I'm so glad I did it now, just not just for the contacts that I've made through it and, but the, and the new knowledge that I've learned, but also kind of the direction it's given me in the fresh fresh perspective and outlook, if you like, for, for what's out there. Because one thing I was quite lucky to do on the course is it, it's very current and up-to-date and predominantly focuses mm-hmm. in and around football, but obviously it touches on the current environment and obviously you know, the, the digital age that we live in and everything's merging with technology now, sports merging with technology in, in any way it can. So it seems like there's a lot of scope there for the future and I'm hugely interested in what's next, what's next for sport, what's next in broadcasting, what's next in sponsorship, marketing, and stuff like that. So, um, so yeah, who knows? We'll, uh, we'll see where I end up, but as long as I can stay involved in professional sport, I think, uh, you know, I can stay emotionally invested and, you know, I'll be happy. Well, congratulations on getting your master's degree. It's really nice to hear that. You've obviously got lots of experiences that people can't buy. So qualifications are one thing, which are, it's black and white stuff, but when you can actually apply it as well and get a good understanding of the sport or sport in general, certainly help. So good luck with that. Now, final question. If James Roby had to describe himself, what would you say about yourself, mate? Oh, I don't, that's, a, that's a very hard question to... to <laughs> oh, give me an easy ride here all night, come on. No, I know, I know. But um, <laughs> I don't know, pretty simple in one way. I, I'd like to, you know, in a nutshell, I'd like to think of myself as honest, hardworking and humble. And I think, if, you know, if you do them three things, you're not going to go far wrong. Well, look, James, we've both thoroughly enjoyed it. I know for me personally, I grew up from being a young boy watching you. I'd be on the terraces at Knowsley Road and I remember you coming on in your younger years and as a fan of the sport and not, not just as a fan of St. Helens, for, for listeners that are, that are tuning into this, I think it's fair to say for an outsider for myself to say that you're one of the best players the sport has ever produced. And, and I think you, you see stuff on television. You, you, Jamie Peacock's quote, where you just go about your business and fans, Wigan and Saints, they don't like each other. And Wigan fans like James Roby because of just the way you go about your business, the things that you do week in, week out, and it's obviously a credit to yourself and everybody that, that you've been around in, in your life. But from, from my dad and I as well, we just want to thank you for, for coming on and being part of this interview today. I'm sure there's been some gold dust spread around for the listeners. And enjoy the next month or so off. Have a great Christmas with your family. And we'll look forward to watching you next year. I'm sure we'll be in touch in the near future too. Yeah, no, thank you very much, guys. Obviously, I've had a great time doing the, uh, the podcast and anything I can do to help out, you, you know where I am. Thanks for tuning in to the Golders podcast today. If you enjoyed this episode and you haven't already subscribed, please do so. Your continued support is highly appreciated. And it means so much to us knowing that the content that's being produced is providing value in people's lives. If you would like to know more or get more information from us, you can follow us on Twitter at Gold Dust Podcast. And also you can visit our website 
at thegolddustcoach.com. Thank you, everybody. <laughs>